I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. You can't be halfway to the range. You're either here or you ain't. It's high noon for Thursday, November 18th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 302nd day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You developed all of your political opinions based on what you thought might make you look like a good, intelligent, caring, and compassionate person. And it just so happens that that is not a good way to form your beliefs. Because when your only principle is whatever might make you look good to other people, the truth is You actually don't have principles. And when reality begins showing you that the decisions you have made aren't working out the way you thought, it all becomes crystal clear and you end up defeating your original priority, which is, of course, your standing within a specific society around you. And the easiest way to refer to that is the party of false decorum. The operating principle being that the right thing to do is that which helps you enhance your public image because that's where you get the success and the money and the power from. And that's the sort of motivation you might have when you go vote for someone like Joe Biden because you are scared what it would mean to vote for someone like Donald Trump that your specific segment of society, your class, we could call it, has waged psychological warfare upon the public to convince them that everything right is actually wrong and everything wrong is actually right. And it's been a very successful psychological operation carried out over decades. And here we are. Many people are still in denial about what this actually is. But the time for that is running out. And the moment is coming where if you want to be a redeemable communist, it really is time to let go of all the stupid and evil communist ideas that have invaded your personality and taken over what you actually are now, which is a collection of superficial beliefs 
that you cannot support or justify in any way. You just think they must be right because you're not a bad person. Well, that may be true in some sense, but the truth is, if you are a collection of beliefs, if that is who you are, if these are the beliefs you really do have, there is nothing you can be with those beliefs other than a bad person. And I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. You have to get all the way out of that. You have to migrate back to America, where we will accept you, by the way, with open arms, because we want Americans to be part of the project of human liberty and self-governance. And in the process of returning, you need to make amends with all the people you have shamed and bullied and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. It's important. If you are ready to do that, well, then come on down to the range. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Thursday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. I'm glad you're here, but here's how this is going to go. Okay. We're getting past the point of silly jokes and patient understanding and slowly allowing people's minds to open up and change. It's getting past that point. It just is. The timing is the timing. It is what it is. This thing is happening on a timeline and that time is running out. I just want to call back on something yesterday that I didn't spend quite enough time on. I want to just make clear what some of these points in the whistleblower document about the FBI creating a threat tag to treat parents going to school board meetings as domestic terrorists, what this actually means. Now, in this document, there are questions that the FBI and the counterterrorism apparatus wanted to examine. One of them was, is there a federal nexus? And another one was, are there potential federal violations that can be investigated and charged? Okay, what this is, is an attempt to figure out ways that the undesirable people doing the undesirable thing, which for the communists is parents speaking up at school board meetings, is there any way that we can twist that around so it'll be viewed as a federal crime? And the National School Boards Association letter that I read a couple of months ago on this podcast and discussed then mentioned things like interstate commerce. And I mentioned at the time that they were seeking to find ways that they could justify federal action because otherwise there would be no reason whatsoever to try to make parents speaking up at a school board meeting a federal concern. If there was actual violence or threats of violence, state law enforcement, local law enforcement could easily handle that. What we have is a federal government that does not require accountability from any part of the federal government, except, of course, when it's the minority party. But they are using federal law enforcement to go after citizens because they're speaking up for kids. Do you know where something like that goes historically? Do you know what kind of regimes use tactics like that? Here's the answer. Illegitimate ones. And how illegitimate? 
this illegitimate. This is a statement from this morning from the actual president of the United States, the one who won the election, Donald Trump. Congratulations to Tim Ramthan, state representative of Wisconsin, for putting forward a powerful and very popular, because it's true, resolution to decertify the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin based on the recently found absolute proof of large-scale voter fraud that took place. Representative Ramthan's resolution details tremendous amounts of election fraud, including 44,272 voters who did not show proper voter identification, which alone is more than twice the margin necessary to win. Thousands of emails that show election manipulation by Mark Zuckerberg's funding, irregularities in the state's voter registrations like 400 registered voters at a single address, the Wisconsin Elections Commission committing felony crimes by knowingly ordering illegal voting at nursing homes, and so much more. Only one state senator needs to co-sponsor the resolution for it to be put to a vote in each chamber, which American patriot from the state Senate will step forward. Great job, Representative Rantham. Even the Democrats and rhinos cannot object to all the evidence that has been exposed. And Donald Trump is exactly right here, by the way. I hope someone steps up and signs on to this with Representative Ramthan, because this is what's happening now. Okay, so many people have resigned themselves to the idea that nothing will come of all of the election fraud talk. It's all just talk. There's nothing real. Nothing will be done. No one's taking action. Why hasn't anyone been arrested? All of that is nonsense, and I've been saying it for a very, very long time. And, you know, I'm not saying that people are bad or dumb to have not believed it. Like, you can just be dejected and disillusioned with the process and get cynical about it. That's understandable, okay? But when you're really following this stuff, when you're really paying attention, when you're really trying to understand it, you can see that there is an overall strategy going on here. Now, the timing of it is the timing of it. I don't know that they planned that all of this would come down now, but it doesn't seem random. It's also highly possible that people have begun to realize what is in the case that Mike Lindell has been preparing for this entire year. And again, it's not Mike Lindell's lawsuit. We are calling it that because Mike Lindell has been the man supporting all of this work to get all of the information that will be in this lawsuit. But the lawsuit is going to be coming from state attorneys general around the country. There's over 20 of them. That is what we are hearing. And that will be there on Tuesday. Now, the Supreme Court's not going to immediately decide whether or not to accept it. Part of that is going to be up to us to make sure that everyone knows what is actually in that lawsuit. And what's in that lawsuit is overwhelming, verifiable, and indisputable proof of a vast conspiracy to steal elections in our country, period. That is it. That is a fact that has been an obvious fact for a very, very long time. It was never a conspiracy theory. They were never baseless claims. This is what it is. And it's not just Wisconsin. Today, in Pennsylvania, a lawsuit was filed. Kathy Bookvar, the Secretary of State during the November 
2020 election period is named as a defendant here, the primary defendant, among many others. Bookfar left her position shortly after the election. And no one really knew why, but the truth is, yeah, we did. I'm going to read the introduction to this complaint. Now comes plaintiffs Ruth Moten, Leah Hoops, and Gregory Stenstrom for their complaint for declaratory, injunctive, mandamus, quo warranto, and any and all other legal remedies available pursuant to law and other relief as specified herein, state as follows. As provided in this complaint, defendants intentionally and fraudulently conspired to destroy, delete, secrete, and hide November 3rd, 2020 election data, materials, and equipment to prevent discovery of election fraud and election law violations in Delaware County which the defendants also conspired to commit and did commit while carrying out the November 3rd, 2020 election. In furtherance of this conspiracy, defendants intentionally created chaos surrounding the November 3rd, 2020 election so that they would be able to carry out the acts of election fraud and the election law violations described herein undetected. Defendants did this in part by placing incompetent or underqualified individuals with no training in positions of responsibility so that they would be able to hide their fraud under the pretense of the incompetence of election day workers and volunteers in the event the election fraud and election law violations were discovered. Moreover, when a May 21st, 2021 right to know request for election information and data was made with respect to information that is by federal and state law to be kept and preserved, the defendants fraudulently and intentionally deleted, changed, adulterated, manipulated and or obscured the information, data and materials produced in response to the RTK request in order to hide their fraud and election code violations because they knew they could not reconcile the previously fraudulently reported November 3rd, 2020 election results with the actual responsive information that they had in their possession and which they were required to preserve and produce in response to the right to know request. Plaintiffs know this to be the case and can document this and demonstrate this by showing, among other things, that the November 3rd, 2020 election data materials and equipment was destroyed, including but not limited to V drives, return sheets, machine tapes, proof sheets, result tapes, mail in ballots, ballots destroyed, voting machines, hard drives, paper documentation, blue crest data, correspondence concerning the November 3rd, 2020 election. And this lawsuit is 91 pages long. So the first obvious thing is that I have not read through it all. But would you guess that this is a lawsuit full of conspiracy theories, baseless claims, no evidence? Of course not. If you've been following Pennsylvania, you will know how corrupt Pennsylvania's election was. None of this has ever been in doubt to anyone who's been paying attention. Election fraud in Pennsylvania has been a known thing for decades. People like Chris Matthews used to joke about it on hardball. But all the politicos always said, oh, it's just the Democrat machine. That is literally what they call the systems of election fraud. But this isn't a joke. 
This is a crime against America and its citizens. This is a violation of the most basic right as a citizen in this country, which is to have your vote counted as one vote and not be diluted by dead people and people who have moved and illegal immigrants and the manipulation of records. And then they go and they cover it all up. And we're supposed to say, hey, no worries. We'll just get them next time. There is no next time. This is the time. But there are now multiple legitimate attempts to begin the process of overturning this election in the near future. They are happening right now. A potential decertification in Wisconsin. A, among other things, quo warranto lawsuit in Pennsylvania. And then the Supreme Court case, which we are now five days away from seeing. And that Supreme Court case is going to have all of the evidence from everywhere and all the country needs to have our claims of election fraud proven to them. All they need to do is just look. Okay. So it's our job to make sure they have to. It's our job to include this fact in our conversations with people. Because right now, our country and our constitution is being intentionally destroyed by illegitimate politicians who should not be serving in their offices and hopefully in the very near term will not be serving in their offices. And that goes right down from the fake president to all the people in his fake administration, none of whom should have jobs under a fake president to the congressman. And senators who are not serving legally, which is most of them. I've said many times before, if you did not challenge the election result as it was given to us by the media, if you didn't do that in a position of public authority and public trust, then you are as guilty as all of the rest of them. And people like Rand Paul and Tom Cotton and all of them, they better have damn good reasoning for not doing it because otherwise, what are they? They are people who stood silently by while an illegitimate and unelected president took office who they call president. There are some politicians who have spoken up throughout this entire time talking about election fraud, saying Joe Biden is illegitimate and good for them. The rest of them should all be gone. Every single one of them needs to be replaced. I don't care if we end up with six senators until we can hold special elections and replace them with legitimate senators. Ones who didn't choose to ignore their oath for political expediency and the pursuit of their own future power. And that is exactly what they did. And this goes right down to the local levels. There is no way that anyone who was in a position to affect this election and chose not to tell the truth should be treated as anything other than a person who has committed treason. And I would expect that we will have another lawmaker in Wisconsin signing on with Representative Ramthan because people are going to quickly realize that there's no other way out. And there should not be. These people do not deserve any patience or understanding or forgiveness. They can make their case 
and we can examine that case, but I didn't know is not okay. They were intentionally ignorant and most of them ignored everything intentionally because they were either getting paid or they were compromised. And you cannot hold public office in a position of public trust if you are that corrupt or that compromised. And I know that we've had this conversation before, but it really is time to start examining what will happen when the country knows what happened. We're already well over 50% of this nation in the number of people who know that the election was decided by fraud. What will happen when this becomes unavoidable? When people can't keep pretending that all of us are just stupid and crazy? What does it mean that an illegitimate president sits in office? That is a massive danger to every single person in this country. What does it mean that all of these people have defended the illegitimate president because it made them feel good? And what does it mean that the media lied to them this whole time? What will it be like when they finally figure that out? Everything they know, everything they are told is wrong. Many of us on this side have been through that process before. I know I have. I saw how COVID was being handled last year. I watched Donald Trump day after day doing his press conferences. And then I watched how the media covered it. And I was doing my own research on the side. And I noticed that Donald Trump was saying true things while the media and our public health experts were lying to control the people, to gin up fear, and to steal an election. And when I realized that, I began the process of unpacking what other beliefs were founded on that same misunderstanding of how the world works and what the people in this country believe and what people's priorities really are. And you begin to see that, yes, the media lies about everything, not just the election, all of it, the race narrative, the immigration narrative, our financial system. Every bit of it is a long-term trick that has been pulled on the vast majority of this country. And luckily, many of us have realized that. And there was an interesting event last night. There was a mayoral election in Columbia, South Carolina, and a man named Daniel Rickenman won that election against a candidate who was endorsed by Barack Obama and the person that we are told is the great black hero of South Carolina, Representative Jim Clyburn. Joe Biden won that county last year. We are told, obviously, of course, he did not. But he won that county by 38 points. And now they can't elect a mayoral candidate on the Democratic ticket. 38 points is massive. That's like 69 to 31. And Columbia has had Democrat mayors for 30 years. So how does something like that turn around to that degree? Of course, there has been a lot of political movement in this country, people fleeing the Democrat Communist Party and 
coming over to the other side, which by default is the Republican Party, which is, you know, it has its own problems. We will clean those out eventually. But that can't explain it all. Now, of course, there's absolutely no way Joe Biden actually won any place anywhere by 38 points. That's madness. But let's also recall that James Clyburn was the man who was said to be responsible for Joe Biden's nomination for his current role of fake president in the Democrat primary in 2020. Until that point, Bernie Sanders was basically crushing him. And I mean, Bernie Sanders is a communist, so I'm not shedding a tear over that. But James Clyburn ramped up the election fraud machine. He gave a face and a gravitas to the narrative that somehow all the black church ladies came out and they just loved Joe Biden so much. You know, Joe Biden has that relationship with black America. In fact, if you don't vote for Joe Biden, you ain't black. And of course, yes, it's important to realize that if the narrative is as they say it is, then what we are told is that a black leader in South Carolina has so much political power that he is able to convince all the black Americans in South Carolina that they must go out and vote for a man who was mentored by a former Grand Cleveland exalted Cyclops in the Klan, Robert Byrd. That's what we're meant to believe. And so Joe Biden became the Democrat nominee. All they had to do was start up the election fraud machine in states all across the country and then pay off enough of the other presidential candidates so that they would drop out in time for Joe Biden to seem to be the presumptive nominee. And that's exactly what we saw. Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar all just exited because it was so clear that Joe Biden was the man we need right now to defeat Donald Trump. So it's possible. It's possible that the political shift in Columbia, South Carolina was so great that the same people who voted for Joe Biden and gave him a win in that region by 38 points. It's possible that those same people just changed their mind along this process and went and voted for the Republican mayoral candidate, reversing the last 30 years of mayoral electoral history in Columbia, South Carolina. It's possible. It is also possible that perhaps Barack Obama and James Clyburn weren't able to start the election fraud machine. Or, and I think maybe this is the most likely, they did start up the election fraud machine and they failed anyway because enough people came out and voted and swamped the system and overrode their election fraud. And Donald Trump mentioned exactly this in his interview with Mike Lindell. I don't know if you've watched it. You should. At the end of that interview, in the last couple of minutes of that interview, Trump notes that the Republicans would not have won that election in Virginia, except for the fact that so many people came out that they were able to overwhelm the election fraud system. And should we expect that Donald Trump is just making that up? Do we imagine 
for a second that Donald Trump does not know the full truth of the November 3rd, 2020 election. After that election, he was still president of the United States for another two and a half months. He has access to intelligence and he knew what was going on and they planned for it and they have been planning for it for years. Donald Trump has been talking about election fraud for over five years. And I'm only referring to his time in an official position. He's been talking about election fraud for a very long time. Are we to imagine that he just forgot to handle it? He just didn't look at it closely enough or he just quietly exited the stage as Joe Biden hobbled onto it and Trump just threw his hands up and said, we'll get him in 2024. Of course not. So Donald Trump knows exactly what happened. Mike Lindell knows exactly what happened. And the two of them had a nice long interview and talked at great lengths about election fraud. Donald Trump knows that Mike Lindell is taking his case to the Supreme Court next week, the case he has supported, which is actually the case of attorneys general from across the country. They have witnesses. They have whistleblowers. They have public officials. Do we need to pretend still that there is anything about any of this that is a conspiracy theory? There's not. And Joe Biden's illegitimacy is showing itself everywhere. In a new poll from Quinnipiac, 16% of the country is pleased with how Joe Biden is handling the economy. 16%. That number is almost impossibly low. That is essentially everyone except for the most dyed-in-the-wool communists. The people so tribal and so ignorant that they can actually look at what's happening now and think, oh yeah, this is better. And then imagine what will happen to all of these people when everyone except them realizes and accepts that the Democrat Communist Party placed itself into power by stealing an election. What will people think? What will these people think when the vast majority of the general population understands that actually they're the conspiracy theorists? They're the ones who don't know anything. They're the ones who don't care. They're the ones who don't look out for communities. They're the ones responsible for the problems in the city. They're the ones who are allowing the crime to continue. They're the ones pushing for open borders. They're the ones ignoring the science to lock the country down and mask children and force people to be injected with an experimental gene therapy that is killing and maiming people by the tens of thousands. That's them. And all of it is based on a grand web of lies. It is astounding to me that people still imagine me saying that makes me sound like the conspiracy theorist and not the people who are trying to convince everyone that masks work, even though there is no scientific proof in the world anywhere that that's true and it has not done anything productive 
in this COVID period either. They're the ones ignoring all the evidence of everything we say. We look at the other side's evidence. We analyze their evidence. These people do not even look. But all of that is coming to an end. And we're going to continue to see these narratives implode. One of those narratives is the coronavirus. And this is a clip of Dr. Scott Atlas with Tucker Carlson last night. In mid-August, I went to the task force meeting. And of course, it's the people who you know, and you're sitting around the room. And the vice president ran the whole task force. Dr. Burks is the task force coordinator. She ran the medical side. And I'm listening to these people talk, and I was stunned. I was stunned at the lack of knowledge, at the complete lack of knowing the data, at the lack of critical thinking. And so there's a discussion. And uh, Was Fauci in these meetings? Yep, Fauci, Burks, Redfield, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people who were heads of agencies, uh, Seema Verma, CMS, I mean, she's not medical. Uh, Dr. Giroir was there. But the, the three, the, what I call sort of the troika of the task force, was Dr. Redfield, head of the CDC, Dr. Fauci, and Dr. Burks, who was the, the head of it, the task force coordinator. And I would listen to them, and their discussions were, uh, you know, were, were, were off base. And uh, so I would, at my first meeting, the vice president turns to me and said, well, does everyone agree? And I'm sort of re- reluctant to speak up. And he, he sees my face and he says, well, Scott, you know, you're here for a reason. I asked you to come here to say your opinion. If you disagree, say it. And I said, okay, I totally disagree. And then I went through the data. And in fact, I was the only one who had scientific papers in the task force meeting. I walked around the White House my entire time and every task force meeting I went to with a dozen, two dozen papers, all the new data. And I would go through the scientific paper when, papers whenever I spoke. And whenever I spoke about an issue, whether it was the school's opening, the risk to children, uh, there, the, the immunity, no one there, none of these medical people offered any data to rebut it. None of them, not one. They never had any scientific paper to rebut it. They would just say, I'm an outlier. Okay? They would say... So they would go after you personally. It was all personally. They were a unit. Burks, Fauci, and Redfield. In fact, Dr. Burks said in, say, January, February of this year that I didn't know this at the time, she had an unwritten sort of contract agreement with Fauci and Redfield that if one of them got fired, they would all fire. They were in it together, and their history stems from HIV and AIDS. Uh, and I briefly mentioned this in the book. They worked together on AIDS. They worked together with one focus, by the way, to get a vaccine, which should ring a bell with what's yeah. happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they were sort of a group of people. When you're in the government for 40 years in high positions, like Dr. Fauci, the people that are in government successfully are not there because they're neutral and therefore they can exist in different administrations. They're there because they understand how to navigate the politics. They understand how to make friends in various agencies. Okay, this is a very political position when you're a 40-year government bureaucrat. So I thought Dr. Fauci, from, from what I had, uh, I think he's a smart guy. Uh, you know, he, he knew the material from the emails that he wrote to his friends from February, March. But what was said during the meetings was uh, revealed by not just Dr. Fauci, by all the medical people in the task force, a lack of knowledge about the data. 
They never cited a scientific study. They never knew a, uh, a critical assessment. They never gave a refutation of any study, nor a refutation or disagreement of each other. Never, not once. I mean, that's unheard of in science. There is no science without disagreement. Wait, I was going to say, that's not science. There's no then. such thing. And so uh, I'll give you an example. Um, as a, as a person who looks at science and papers, I, I was a scientific paper reviewer and an NIH grant reviewer for many, many years. Uh, you look at the methods section of a paper in a journal, meaning the materials and methods. How did you do the study design? If you see that that's not good, that's not appropriate, you're done. You don't, it doesn't matter. You can't make a conclusion if the study was done incorrectly. Right. Okay, so I evaluate the papers. I don't sit there and read the blurb of the paper in the New York Times. I look at the paper. I was talking almost every single day to some of the world's best epidemiologists about the data on an ongoing basis. These people, there was never any indication that they knew the papers, cited a paper, or, or even criticized a paper, not one. Uh, and as I say in the book, I mean, there were things, there were medical words being mispronounced in the meetings. There were statements being made that were just, I was looking around and sort of saying, did anyone else hear this but me? I mean, I've, I've never worked with people at this level in my career as I did in that task force. And I'm not saying at a high level, okay? I'm saying at a low level. I've worked at the, some of the best medical centers in the country, University of Pennsylvania, University of Chicago. I was a medical student, Stanford University, Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, I, I always would say, the, I'm not sure these people could have been assistant professors where I worked. I mean, there was a lack of critical thinking, a lack of preparation, uh, no one-sided data but me. Now, I wanted to play that whole clip because all of it is absolutely stunning. I mean, many of us have been following this the entire time, and we knew these things. But to hear Scott Atlas just put it all down like that is pretty stunning. What we have is a group of people who we were told are the experts we must trust. We must trust the science. But it turns out the people tasked with leading the scientific response to what we are told is a very deadly pandemic didn't actually know what they were doing at all and don't seem to care. They treated the real science as if it was a conspiracy theory. And that backed up the media's story that it was a conspiracy theory. But the data was always there and it always said essentially the exact opposite of what these people have been saying. And people in the mainstream will hear something like this and think, okay, well, yeah, but that's just one guy's opinion. And there's just so much on the other side. But there isn't. And there never has been. And then we have this yesterday from the New York Post. Fauci says COVID-19 booster might become new standard for being vaccinated. This is by Jesse O'Neill. COVID-19 booster shots may become the new standard to be considered fully vaccinated, according to the nation's top doctor. Dr. Anthony Fauci discussed the impending need for hundreds of millions of Americans to roll up their sleeves and get the jab during a pre-taped interview that aired at the 2021 Stat Summit in Boston this week. I happen to believe as an immunologist and infectious disease person that a third shot boost for an mRNA vaccine should be part of the actual standard regimen where a booster isn't a luxury, a luxury. 
the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases reportedly said. A booster isn't an add-on, and a booster is part of what the original regimen should be. So that when we look back on this, we're going to see that boosters are essential for an optimal vaccine regimen, Fauci told the audience, according to ABC News. The remarks came as New York City and several states this week expanded booster shot eligibility to all adults who were vaccinated against COVID-19 at least six months ago. Until then, the jabs were only available to people 65 years of age and over and those in high risk situations. The guidance from the president's chief medical advisor came as Moderna filed an application with the FDA seeking emergency use authorization for vaccine booster shots for all U.S. residents 18 and older. Pfizer last week asked federal regulators to expand its booster shot eligibility to all Americans. Some 31.5 million Americans have already received a booster shot on Wednesday, according to CDC data. More than a third of the recipients were over 65. The number of vaccinated U.S. residents stood at 196 million people, according to the agency, which noted that 40 percent of the country was not fully inoculated. The push for booster shots came as the seven day rolling average of cases increased by 27 percent since October 25th. U.S. data showed Fauci had said over the summer he was certain Americans would need additional doses of covid-19 vaccines. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson alerted Great Britain that third shots are absolutely crucial Monday. It's very clear that getting three jabs, getting your booster will become an important fact and it will make life easier for you in all sorts of ways, Johnson said. A recent study showed the rates of confirmed COVID-19 infection and severe illness were substantially lower among those who got a booster shot compared to the people who did not. I wonder if this writer at the New York Post will be able to look back on that claim there at the end and think, oh, yeah, I reported that just fine. Taking the CDC's word for it and citing studies is no longer sufficient. This is just straight up propaganda. And recall just a couple of minutes ago, we heard Scott Atlas talk about how studies aren't necessarily true and correct and good. What we have had from the CDC and from the public health community and from the fake administration is a bunch of claims based on very bad studies, often only reported by the media with big headlines claiming that the study says something it does not even say. And that's why I've spent so much time going over many of these studies on the podcast over the last year and a half. But what will it mean when people are told that they are now no longer fully vaccinated, that they are in fact unvaccinated and they are placed right back into the class of all of us, all of us science deniers. A great many of them might go along and get the booster shot so they can still self-identify as part of the solution to coronavirus, even though the vaccine can't prevent infection, transmission, serious illness, or death. It cannot do anything to help us achieve herd immunity. But they will still believe and still say that they are helping and that the people who don't comply and obey are killing everyone's grandmother. And this is yet another instance where those of us who have been saying for a very long time 
that this is not a vaccine and that this is not a solution. This is a lifetime subscription to being injected with whatever they tell you to get injected with. We were called conspiracy theorists for saying that. But what does this mean? Three shots are going to be enough. They're already going past that in Israel. How many shots is enough? And hey, Kami, how many shots are you willing to take before you say enough is enough? How many times will you inject yourself with the experimental gene therapy? And will it be enough to kill or maim you like it has done to so many other people? At what point do you just let go and say, yeah, this is wrong. Yeah, this is what they said it was. People are going to begin realizing that they have been absolutely bizarro world opposite wrong about the most important issues in their lives. And they're going to have to account for how they have treated people who were trying to get them to understand how bad for them what they were doing actually was. And how is it that so many people could have come to believe so many absolutely dead wrong things about an issue this important? Now, there's a great long investigative piece from an outlet called mintpressnews.com. This is from Sunday, and the headline is Revealed. Documents show Bill Gates has given $319 million to media outlets. This is by Alan McLeod, although it's spelled M-A-C-L-E-O-D, in case you want to look it up. Up until his recent messy divorce, Bill Gates enjoyed something of a free pass in corporate media, generally presented as a kindly nerd who wants to save the world, the Microsoft co-founder was even unironically christened St. Bill by The Guardian. Now, I just want to pause for a second. How many dystopian movies, how many like comic book action films, how many of those have featured a villain who was presented as a kindly nerd that wanted to save the world? I've said a million times, there is nothing more dangerous than dorks with power who think their dorkiness is actually going to save everyone else. All of the fools and the Luddites, you know, people like us. And eventually I'm going to write something about that. And I'm kind of thinking of it conceptually as reverse Ludditism. The idea that because things are new and because they are technological, they must work the best. It is a total logical fallacy, but one that is accepted and supported by the members of the party of false decorum. And that's kind of how we got here. While other billionaires Media empires are relatively well known. The extent to which Gates's cash underwrites the modern media landscape is not. After sorting through over 30,000 individual grants, Mint Press can reveal that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has made over $300 million worth of donations to fund media projects. Recipients of this cash include many of America's most important news outlets, including CNN, NBC, NPR, PBS, and The Atlantic. Gates also sponsors a myriad of influential 
foreign organizations, including the BBC, The Guardian, The Financial Times, The Daily Telegraph in the United Kingdom, prominent European papers such as Le Monde, Der Spiegel and El País, as well as big global broadcasters like Al Jazeera. The Gates Foundation money going toward media programs has been split up into a number of sections presented in descending numerical order and includes a link to the relevant grant on the organization's website. And they have this really well laid out. NPR is actually the top recipient. And rather than me reading through those, it will be better for you to just have a look at this yourself. Together, these donations total $166,216,526. The money is generally directed toward issues closest to the Gates's hearts. For example, the $3.6 million CNN grant went toward, quote, reporting on gender equality with a particular focus on least developed countries, producing journalism on the everyday inequalities endured by women and girls across the world, end quote. While the Texas Tribune received millions to, quote, increase public awareness and engagement of education reform issues in Texas. Given that Bill Gates is one of charter schools, most fervent supporters, a cynic might interpret this as planting pro corporate charter school propaganda into the media disguised as objective news reporting. The Gates foundation has also given nearly $63 million to charities closely aligned with big media outlets, including nearly $53 million to BBC media action over $9 million to MTV's staying alive foundation and a million dollars to the New York times neediest causes fund. While not specifically funding journalism, donations to the philanthropic arm of a media player should still be noted. And this is exactly right. By the way, you know, we can say that, $25 million to NPR might not sound like a lot of money because you might think, okay, well, these are going to help operational budgets and it's all just being used for that project. You know, it's bad enough that somebody is funding specific work, disguising it as objective reporting. But what's more likely is that these funds are being routed in specific ways so that the money can go to enriching specific people who then set the policy of the outlet. This is the sort of thing that can bias entire news organizations, and it is part of the way that these media companies have become nothing more than propaganda outlets for global communism. Back to the article. Gates continues to underwrite a wide network of investigative journalism centers as well, totaling just over $38 million, more than half of which has gone to the D.C.-based International Center for Journalists to expand and develop African media. And that's interesting, isn't it? Bill Gates controlling African media while he is continually experimenting on the people of impoverished African nations so that he can get his vaccines just right and save the world? Gosh, It's so great that we have philanthropists. Where would we be without them? And so they list those organizations. This brings our running total up to $216.4 million. The foundation also puts up the money to directly train journalists all over the world in the form of scholarships, courses, and workshops. Today, it is possible for an individual to train as a reporter thanks to the Gates Foundation grants, find work at a Gates-funded outlet, and to belong to a press association funded by Gates. This is especially true of journalists working in the fields of health, education, and global development, the ones Gates himself 
is most active in and where scrutiny of the billionaire's actions and motives are most necessary. Imagine what we might know about how the vaccines are really going in Africa if there weren't a propaganda operation specifically designed to tell us that everything is just fine and Bill Gates is saving the world. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also pays for a wide range of specific media campaigns around the world. For example, since 2014, it has donated $5.7 million to the Population Foundation of India in order to create dramas that promote sexual and reproductive health with the intent to increase family planning methods in South Asia. Meanwhile, it allotted over $3.5 million to a Senegalese organization to develop radio shows and online content that would feature health information. Supporters consider this to be helping critically underfunded media, while opponents might consider it a case of a billionaire using his money to plant his ideas and opinions into the press. And so now you take the next step, right? It's one thing to communicate lies through the media. People believe that these outlets are objective, and so they take what the media says as true. But a lot of people don't spend a whole lot of time consuming news and analyzing it and critiquing it and figuring out whether or not the claims made are true. They accept them because of where they appear and where they appear is an outlet that means nothing more than the brand at the top of it. The New York Times isn't true just because it's the New York Times, just because people call it the paper of record. The things written in the New York Times and the Washington Post and elsewhere are only true if they are true. And Now they might lose their Pulitzers from 2018 that were given to these journalists for reporting on the fake steel dossier. And that's going to be a red pill for a lot of people, too. What will it mean that their favorite news outlets have to give back their Pulitzer prizes because the excellent reporting they've been doing turned out to be completely false? Back to the article. Added together, these Gates-sponsored media projects come to a total of $319.4 million. However, there are clear shortcomings with this non-exhaustive list, meaning the true figure is undoubtedly far higher. First, it does not count subgrants, money given by recipients to media around the world. And while the Gates Foundation fosters an air of openness about itself, there is actually precious little public information about what happens to the money from each grant, save for a short one or two sentence description written by the foundation itself on its website. Only donations to press organizations themselves or projects that could be identified from the information on the Gates Foundation's website as media campaigns were counted, meaning that thousands of grants having some media element do not appear in this list. A case in point is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's partnership with Viacom CBS, the company that controls CBS News, MTV, VH1, Nickelodeon, and BET. Media reports at the time noted that the Gates Foundation was paying the entertainment giant to insert information and public service announcements into its programming, and that Gates had intervened to change storylines in popular shows like ER and Law & Order SVU. How about that? That's the next step. After the news media, you start inserting these stories into things people watch as entertainment. And they accept the underlying claims as true simply because they're part of the plot. And so if then they see that part of the plot represented in the propaganda media, they assume that's true too. And the two things kind of back each other up, don't they? 
However, when checking uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation grants database, Viacom and CBS are nowhere to be found. The likely grants in question totaling over six million dollars, merely describing the project as a public engagement campaign aimed at improving high school graduation rates and post-secondary completion rates specifically aimed at parents and students, meaning that it was not counted in the official total. There are surely many more examples like this. For a tax-privileged charity that so often trumpets the importance of transparency, it's remarkable how intensely secretive the Gates Foundation is about its financial flows. Tim Schwab, one of the few investigative journalists who has scrutinized the tech billionaire, told Mint Press. Also not included are grants aimed at producing articles for academic journals. While these articles are not meant for mass consumption, they regularly form the basis for stories in the mainstream press and help shape narratives around key issues. The Gates Foundation is given far and wide to academic sources, with at least $13.6 million going toward creating content for the prestigious medical journal, The Lancet. Isn't that astounding? Remember last year when the Democrat Communist Party and the state Propaganda media were trying to convince everyone that not only did hydroxychloroquine not work and not help prevent coronavirus serious illness and death when given early, they actually tried to make the case that hydroxychloroquine was dangerous to people. The Lancet had to rescind studies about this last year because they were exposed as fraudulent. Isn't it incredible how something like that could happen from an outlet that is being paid by one of the guys who simultaneously is pushing the vaccines harder than anyone in the world and is devoutly committed to population control and reduction? It's shocking, isn't it? And of course, even money given to universities for purely research projects eventually ends up in academic journals and ultimately downstream into mass media. Academics are under heavy pressure to print their results in prestigious journals. Publish or perish is the mantra in university departments. Therefore, even these sorts of grants have an effect on our media. Neither these nor grants funding the printing of books or establishment of websites counted in the total, although they too are forms of media. In comparison to other tech billionaires, Gates has kept his profile as a media controller relatively low. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' purchase of the Washington Post for $250 million in 2013 was a very clear and obvious form of media influence, as was eBay founder Pierre Omidyar's creation of First Look Media, the company that owns The Intercept. Despite flying more under the radar, Gates and his companies have amassed considerable influence in media. We already rely on Microsoft-owned products for communication, for example, Skype and Hotmail, social media like LinkedIn, and entertainment like the Microsoft Xbox. Furthermore, the hardware and software we use to communicate often comes courtesy of the 66-year-old Seattleite. How many people reading this are doing so on a Microsoft Surface or Windows phone and doing so via Windows OS? Not only that, Microsoft owns stakes in media giants such as Comcast and AT&T. And the MS in MSNBC stands for Microsoft. That the Gates Foundation is underwriting a significant chunk of our media ecosystem leads to serious problems with objectivity. The Foundation's grants to media organizations raise obvious conflict of interest questions. How can reporting be unbiased when a major player holds the purse strings, wrote Gates's local Seattle Times in 2011. 
This was before the newspaper accepted Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation money to fund its education lab section. Schwab's research has found that this conflict of interest goes right to the very top. Two New York Times columnists had been writing glowingly about the Gates Foundation for years without disclosing that they also worked for a group, the Solutions Journalism Network, that, as shown above, has received over $7 million from the Tech Billionaires charity. Earlier this year, Schwab also declined to co-report on a story about COVAX for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, suspecting that the money Gates had been pumping into the outlet would make it impossible to accurately report on a subject so close to Gates's heart. Sure enough, when the article was published last month, it repeated the assertion that Gates had little to do with COVAX's failure, mirroring the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation stance and quoting them throughout. Only at the very end of the more than 5,000 word story did it reveal that the organization it was defending was paying the wages of its staff. I don't believe Gates told the Bureau of Investigative Journalism what to write. I think the Bureau implicitly, if subconsciously, knew they had to find a way to tell this story that didn't target their funder. The biasing effects of financial conflicts are complex, but very real and reliable. Schwab said, describing it as a case study in the perils of Gates-funded journalism. Mint Press also contacted the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for comment, but it did not respond. Gates, who amassed his fortune by building a monopoly and zealously guarding his intellectual property, bears significant blame for the failure of the coronavirus vaccine rollout across the world. Quite aside from the COVAX fiasco, he pressured Oxford University not to make its publicly funded vaccine open source and available to all for free, but instead to partner with private corporation AstraZeneca, a decision that meant that those who could not pay were blocked from using it. That Gates has made over a 100 donations to the university, totaling hundreds of millions of dollars, likely played some role in the decision. To this day, fewer than 5% of people in low-income countries have received even one dose of COVID vaccine. The death toll from this is immense. Well, hey man, unless you're talking about the deaths from the actual vaccine, the deaths due to lack of vaccine is probably not immense. Unfortunately, many of these real criticisms of Gates and his network are are obscured by wild and untrue conspiracy theories about such things as inserting microchips in vaccines to control the population. This has meant that genuine critiques of the Microsoft co-founder are often demonetized and algorithmically suppressed, meaning that outlets are strongly dissuaded from covering the topic, knowing they will likely lose money if they do so. The paucity of scrutiny of the world's second richest individual, in turn, feeds into outlandish suspicions. Gates certainly deserves it. Quite apart from his deep and potentially decades-long ties to the infamous Jeffrey Epstein, his attempts to radically change African society, and his investment in controversial chemical giant Monsanto, he is perhaps the key driver behind the American charter school movement, an attempt to essentially privatize the U.S. education system. Charter schools are deeply unpopular with teachers unions, which see the movement as an attempt to lessen their autonomy and reduce public oversight into how and what children are taught. And I would disagree with them throughout all of that, but we don't have to discuss that right now. In most coverage, Gates's donations are broadly presented as altruistic gestures. Yet many have pointed to the inherent flaws with this model, noting that allowing billionaires to decide what they do with their money allows them to set the public agenda, giving them enormous power over society. 
Philanthropy can and is being used deliberately to divert attention away from different forms of economic exploitation that underpin global inequality today, said Lindsay McGoey, professor of sociology at the University of Essex, UK, and author of No Such Thing as a Free Gift, The Gates Foundation and the Price of Philanthropy. She adds, the new philanthro capitalism threatens democracy by increasing the power of the corporate sector at the expense of the public sector organizations, which increasingly face budget squeezes in part by excessively remunerating for-profit organizations to deliver public services that could be delivered more cheaply without private sector involvement. And again, I think that that is maybe missing a true understanding of that situation by at least half. But they're on the way, I suppose. Charity, as former British Prime Minister Clement Attlee noted, is a cold, gray, loveless thing. If a rich man wants to help the poor, he should pay his taxes gladly, not dole out money at a whim. Again, okay. None of this means that the organizations receiving Gates's money, media or otherwise, are irredeemably corrupt, nor that the Gates Foundation does not do any good in the world. But it does introduce a glaring conflict of interest whereby the very institutions we rely on to hold accountable one of the richest and most powerful men in the planet's history are quietly being funded by him. The conflict of interest is one that corporate media have largely tried to ignore, while the supposedly altruistic philanthropist Gates just keeps getting richer, laughing all the way to the bank. And isn't it amazing that he keeps getting richer the more his narrative becomes accepted by the public and the more public policy globally is changed in the way he wants it changed, which in turn allows him to spend more and more and more money, making sure that his point of view is actually the one that is distributed to everyone. And do you think Gates is the only person doing this? Of course not. We talk about George Soros all the time and the organizations that he funds. But anytime you do that, you are called a conspiracy theorist. If I were to make the claim that the media's coverage of the coronavirus narrative and the vaccine narrative is always wrong, always propaganda and always biased in exactly one direction. Because of their funding, I would be called a conspiracy theorist. Because people don't have the capacity, apparently, to understand how this stuff actually works. But I like this article because that's exactly what it does. It breaks it down and shows you. Here is where his money goes. And I just want to reiterate here that the focus should not be only on the fact that he is funding the operations of these organizations. It's not just that. He is buying people off so that their own personal commitment remains steadfast and they will continue to perpetuate his narrative. I mean, once you've started taking money to propagandize the American public, when do you stop propagandizing them? Do you just two years down the line, if the money dries up, start saying, oh, actually, Bill Gates was the opposite of what we've said for so long? Of course not. The compromise comes from the top of the organization down and it endures despite the money. And I just want to update on one more story from yesterday before I go. This is in the Washington Post and it was published 
Last evening, Pentagon Inspector General raises questions about former D.C. Guard commanders January 6th account. This is by Dan Lamoth and Paul Sony. The D.C. National Guard's commanding general was directed twice by Pentagon leadership to send in troops as violence engulfed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, according to a newly released investigation that appears to undercut the now retired general's claim that he would have responded to the riot more quickly if Trump administration officials had allowed. And I do always love it when the most communist of outlets are forced to chip away at their own false narratives in hopes of not being caught for it themselves. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy first notified Major General William Walker by phone at 4.35 p.m. that Walker was authorized to send troops to Capitol Hill and then called the general again to reissue the deployment order about 30 minutes after McCarthy originally conveyed it. An unidentified Army witness told investigators with the Independent Defense Department Inspector General According to a newly released report, a timeline of events that day assembled by the inspector general's office also indicates separate calls were made. The investigation's findings bring new scrutiny to Walker, who earlier this year was lauded for his candor in publicly recounting how dysfunction at the Pentagon stalled the National Guard's response as supporters of President Donald Trump (laughs) brutalized police and panicked lawmakers pleaded for help. So dramatic. A very violent insurrection. They almost took over the country and overturned the election. These clowns, man. They still try to protect the base narrative while chipping away at everything that base narrative is meant to support. They can't let go of that last part, though, and it is going to be hilarious to watch them attempt to. Speaking in a joint Senate hearing on March 3rd, Walker recalled having a quick reaction force geared up and said he was frustrated by the speed at which senior defense officials were responding. He told senators it was 5.08 p.m. when he received approval to deploy. The Capitol was breached at 1.50 p.m. Three weeks after the Senate hearing, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi appointed him House Sergeant at Arms, saying Walker was a leader of great integrity and that he would be an important asset to the House, particularly in light of the January 6th insurrection. Walker, in a phone interview late Wednesday, said he was shocked the inspector general's office released what he characterized as inaccurate, uncorroborated statements by anonymous army officials. He said he tried to send personnel to the Capitol hours earlier and was ready to go when first notified. And this is pretty incredible. He's actually going to attempt to say that the inspector general's report is wrong because it's based on anonymous sources. Well, pretty much everything the Washington Post prints that makes everything MAGA or even MAGA adjacent look terrible is based on anonymous sources. Back to the article. These were exigent circumstances. Rome was burning, Walker said. I came danger close to just saying, hey, we're going and then resign. But prudent people talked me out of that decision. It probably wouldn't have been the right one. (laughs) Man, this dude is so screwed. Walker said he was not allowed to respond to the anonymous statements before the report as if that would have mattered. Calling the inspector general's report sloppy and illustrative that he is up against quote, the most powerful army in the world. 
And I believe in that army, he added, but that army failed on January 6th. McCarthy, through a spokesperson, declined to comment. It's unclear why Walker was never asked for a response to the claims he was told twice to dispatch his forces. A spokeswoman for the inspector general's office, Megan Reed, said that as a matter of practice, she could not comment on the office's oversight processes. The investigation concluded that overall, the Pentagon's response was, quote, reasonable in light of the circumstances, end quote. Walker told Congress in his testimony that memorandums issued by McCarthy and Trump's acting defense secretary, Christopher C. Miller, restricted his ability to quickly dispatch the National Guard. But army officials interviewed by the inspector general said Walker was aware of those decisions ahead of time and did not voice objection. The discussion of QRF, that's uh, quick reaction force implementation beforehand was very clear and General Walker understood it and he knew exactly what needed to happen if the QRF needed to be employed and he had no questions or concerns at that time, said one member of the army staff, according to the report. The discrepancy in timelines has come up before. Days after the assault, the Pentagon released an account of events that said Miller provided verbal authorization at 4.32 p.m. to remission the National Guard in support of Capitol Police and that guardsmen began departing from the D.C. Armory precisely 30 minutes later. A National Guard timeline released in January did not mention a call at 4.32 p.m. Investigators interviewed 44 witnesses, including Walker, McCarthy, Miller, and Army General Mark A. Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Other witnesses include members of the Army staff and D.C. National Guard, D.C. Mayor Muriel E. Bowser, D.C. Police Chief Robert J. Conti III, and former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund, who was forced to resign after the attack. And it's always amazing, isn't it, to see who is forced to resign and who is promoted? This man lied in his congressional testimony, and Nancy Pelosi, in return, promoted him by making him the House Sergeant-at-Arms. Mirroring his Senate testimony, Walker told the inspector general's investigators that he was stunned and frustrated during a 2.22 p.m. conference call when city officials asked for National Guard assistance and senior army officers, Lieutenant Generals Charles Flynn and Walter Pyatt, advised against providing it. Charles Flynn, you say? Well, that's very interesting. Other witnesses interviewed as part of the investigation said that Pyatt was concerned about public blowback over the sight of uniformed military personnel potentially confronting political protesters, but that the army had not ruled out helping and needed a plan before inserting soldiers into the crisis. And it's amazing, isn't it, that they were so concerned about the optics of having the military there during what they must have believed would be a very peaceful protest. Because if you are prioritizing optics over safety, then the only way you could make that assessment responsibly is to believe that the protest was going to be peaceful. Kind of a bit of a narrative problem, is it not? And then remember that for the first few months of this year, there was a military perimeter set up around the Capitol so that armed guards could protect the illegitimate regime, you know, like they do in banana republics. Walker, when asked by Pyatt and Flynn for an operational plan, told the generals that he wanted to get his personnel onto buses and en route to the Capitol while taking direction from police officials. He told investigators Pyatt wanted more specifics. 
It would be like me saying, go to Baghdad and just find somebody and see what they need, Pyatt said in his interview with investigators. Flynn's involvement became controversial because his brother is retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, a former Trump advisor who called for the military to participate in rerunning the 2020 election. And I hope he's still calling for that. I am happy to call for that as well. Army officials falsely asserted for days that Charles Flynn was not at the meeting before Flynn confirmed that he was briefly involved in a statement to the Washington Post. The inspector general report affirms as much, saying other army witnesses told investigators that Flynn's involvement was minimal. Pyatt told inspector general investigators that he was unable to calm other officials, saying someone on the conference call warned that they would tell the media that the army had denied the Capitol Police request for help. Another army witness said Bowser made that statement. An official close to Bowser said Wednesday that the mayor did not speak during the call. It is not clear who else may have issued the warning. It is amazing that these people are stooping to this level, just trying to claim that everyone else just heard something that never happened. A short time later, army officials told investigators that claim leaked to the media anonymously and McCarthy and his staff took time to respond to inquiries from journalists and members of Congress during the crisis. An unidentified army witness told Inspector General investigators that McCarthy went to the D.C. Metropolitan Police headquarters after the conference call at about 3.48 p.m. in part because Walker, quote, could not clearly articulate to his staff, end quote, specifically what police needed. Mr. McCarthy, Mayor Bowser, Chief Conti, and others present drafted a plan that identified where the D.C. National Guard personnel would go, the route they would take, with whom they would connect when they arrived, what they would do when they got there, whom they would support, who was in charge, and who the key leaders were, the report said. The report made several recommendations for improvement, including ensuring that all D.C. National Guard members have functioning communications equipment issued by the Defense Department, formulating a plan for how the Pentagon and D.C. Guard might respond to any future major disturbance in the D.C. area and establish criteria and training for personnel who could be tasked with responding. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby said in a statement that the Defense Department, quote, take seriously all reports of the department's independent inspector general, end quote, and is reviewing findings and recommendations in the report. We are grateful for their work, he said. And it is just a beautiful thing to witness as all of this criminality and corruption is exposed bit by bit as the media attempts to save itself. The amount of backstabbing that's going to occur in the next few months is going to be astounding. And you can just watch as all of these narratives crumble. These people are so screwed. I'm going to do my best to get an episode up tomorrow, but it might not be until Monday. So just a heads up and assuming that I'll be able to get it done. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, 
but I'm happy about it. The platform is great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!